with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is April the 11th, 2013. This is episode 1109 of the Survival Podcast, and I've got a great guest for you guys today. His name is John Titus. He's an attorney. He has a uh, film out called Bailout. It's about a subject that I think a lot of us think we've put behind us. We haven't. He's going to tell you why and a lot of other interesting things in just a bit. But it's about the 2008-2009 economic crisis and the real cause of it, which isn't what the TV told you. Before I bring on John, though, let's go ahead and uh, take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by helping to make sure the show's for you, here for you five days a week, Monday through Friday, for an hour to an hour and a half a day. Uh, sponsor of the day number one today is Backyard Food Production. You can find them at BackyardFoodProduction.com. The, the DVD has been rebranded. It's now called Growing Your Groceries, which is probably a better title for it because that's exactly what it's about. Turning your backyard into a food production machine on all uh, all walks of life, from vegetables to carbohydrate crops uh, to protein sources as well. You'll find everything you need there, and you'll learn how to turn your backyard into that food production machine as well. Whether you have a small uh, piece of land in the suburbs or a large uh, acreage out in the uh, in the rural environments, it doesn't really matter. The techniques that you'll learn on GrowingYourGroceries.com are going to teach you how to turn that 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 land into a food production system for you. Uh, I'll tell you what else about that. It comes with this bonus DVD. The information compiled on the bonus DVD is probably worth the cost of the actual DVD itself. Just the plans, the the white sheets, the information, all of it is just incredible how much information is crammed on that bonus side. It's actually a bonus CD, I should say, that comes with the DVD. Check it out today again, uh, BackyardFoodProduction.com. Next up today, Fortress Defense Consultants. Hey, you know, there's a lot of people up in arms right now about the right to keep and bear arms. I am too. I'm angry. I'm upset. But I'll tell you something, keeping and bearing arms is only one part of the equation. Being proficient is the other. If you haven't had professional firearms training in the last, oh, I don't know, four or five years, it's time for another course. If you're thinking, what gun do I buy next while everything's still kind of high in price, hey, go take a firearms training course. It doesn't cost any more to do that now than it did six months ago. The place to do that is Fortress Defense Consultants with Frank Sharp and his cadre of professional instructors. Get in touch with them today at FortressDefense.com and find Find out about the training opportunities that exist, not just the tactical training, but the medical training to go along with it. And here's the great part. Let's say you're like, you know what? I'd love to go to Frank Sharp's school. I really would. But his school's in Indiana. And I don't live in Indiana, and I don't know that I can take the time to travel to Indiana. How about this? Talk to some of your buddies, your friends at work, put together a group from church, whatever. Uh, get in touch with Frank. And if you have a local range, get in touch with them. If not, get in touch with Frank. He'll find one. He'll bring the training to you if you have a group of, oh, I don't know, six or more people. You know, that would be a great way to actually spread the message of preparedness. There's a lot of people that are into guns, and generally those people kind of really kind of just are on the edge of preparedness if they're not already there. And it's a great way to get that group of people together and start talking about why 
you're doing the training. And that leads to other conversations. So it could be a great way to spread the message of prepping and get great training at the same time. Again, FortressDefense.com. Next up, I want to remind you guys about the Walking to Freedom Forum. Uh, I'll tell you what, I want you guys all to come on over there. I think we have about 700 members or something like that now. There should be a couple thousand of you guys over there easily uh, with the size of this audience. Get on over there and vote. I mean, that's the big thing. Vote. Because what we're doing is we're determining the states that are at the bottom of the list through disapproval voting. And once the list is made, you can't complain about the list if you didn't vote. You really can't because you had your opportunity to say your piece. Come on over, walkingtofreedom.com. And remember, you don't have to be wanting to leave where you're at. In fact, we probably need more people that want to stay where they're at than want to leave where they're at to help those who want to walk. We have two sides to this. The walkers and the ambassadors. You, I want you guys over there telling the people that are like, you know what, I want out of New York. I want out of Illinois. I want out of California. Hey, come to Florida. This is what we've got going for us. Hey, uh, let's, you know, it's a great way to reach out to people that have common values and start to build up your own community by bringing the people who have been, you know, pushed to the edge of, of, of what they're willing to accept. In these other states. Check us out today, walkingtofreedom.com. Last but not least, do consider joining the member support brigade. If you'll do that, you'll get exclusive content available only to members, and you'll help support the show at only 18.3 cents per episode. You'll get discounts to over 40 different discount vendors that sell everything and anything you can think of in the preparedness, self sufficiency, self reliance space. In other words, if you're buying long term storage food, if you're buying gardening supplies, if you're buying solar stuff, if you're buying food, Food preservation equipment. If you're buying stuff every year uh, on any level, you're probably going to get your money back money, many times over just from the discounts. Plus, you get all the great content. Plus, you get all the other benefits, and you're supporting the show. And it gets even better. If you're military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active due to your prior service, or a first responder like a paramedic, EMT, firefighter, something like that, email me before you join. Put subject, or put in the subject line, uh, service discount. And, and then just give me like one or two sentences on who you are and what you're doing or who you are and what you did if you're prior service. And I'll send you a discount code that'll save you even more money. It's a big discount. It's, it makes the great deal even better. Uh, and again, you send that email and all email correspondence should come to me to this address, jack at the survivalpodcast.com. Again, jack at the survivalpodcast.com. If you want to get in touch with me for any reason, that's the best way to do it. I can't answer all my emails simply based on temporal limitations. That means time-based limitations. But I do try to read all of it, at least skim it, and I do try to respond to as many emails as I can. With that, I do have the uh, housekeeping wrapped up, and I want to introduce our special guest at this time. John Titus is a lawyer. He's licensed before the U.S. Supreme Court. He's practiced patent litigation for over 15 years. In 2011 through 2012, he took a break from his practice to make a feature-length film, Bailout, about the real cause of a financial crisis which he says is criminal fraud. The film features interviews with truth-tellers like Dylan Radigan, Carl Denninger, Chris Whalen, uh, Yevis Smith, Sheriff Tom Dart, and others. Uh, and he's now working on a TV safe version of the film to be released later this year. Before becoming a lawyer, Titus worked as a circuit designer for motors used on the space shuttle and space station. He was, in his own words, at one time a free market Republican until the party betrayed itself as a total sham in 2008 by getting the TARP bailout passed. So I guess that makes him a political atheist now. The film's awesome. The concept is awesome. Wait do you hear about it. Gambling with the bank's money. 
and more. And with that, hey, uh, John, welcome to the Survival Podcast, man. Hey, Jack. Thanks for having me. Hey, we're going to talk about something that I think to some people is old news, but I think to most of our audience is an ongoing disaster, which is um, the financial crisis that began uh, in 2008. I actually think it began before that. Maybe you do too. So my lead-off question is, what caused the financial crisis of 08 as it's been, you know, come to be called today? Well, it, it's really, I, personally, I think the financial crisis is a misnomer. It's really a legal crisis. And what caused it was fraud, um, specifically in the mortgage-backed security space, where you saw two species of fraud, one of which people are allowed to talk about on the media, and one of which you don't hear about at all. Uh, the one that people talk about is you had securities that were rated AAA. The sellers of the securities knew that rating was bogus and sold them anyway. That's a straight-up case of securities fraud. The fraud that is not discussed is that mortgage-backed securities were never conveyed from the securitizers to the investors. And so what you have is a bunch of investors um, who thought they had money in mortgage-backed securities, they find out that these investment trusts are totally empty. Um, in other words, the mortgage-backed securities are not mortgage-backed. And so what happened in 2008 was, in addition to finding out that the quality of the paper wasn't really AAA, um, a lot of people discovered that the mortgage-backed securities weren't mortgage-backed. And so what happened is the credit market froze up as the wholesale investment market found out they could no longer use the mortgage-backed securities as collateral. And so when in 2008, you remember everybody's talking about a credit freeze. What they mean, or what they, if they were honest, um, they would say that was a wholesale credit freeze. It wasn't a credit freeze on Main Street. It was a credit freeze on Wall Street and at the investment bank level. And that is really what kicked off the security, well, the, the so-called financial crisis, is people could, they could no longer, there was no trust left in the system insofar as mortgage-backed securities were concerned, and it just got worse from there. That's what set it off. When you said that mortgage-backed securities weren't actually mortgage-backed, could you maybe explain that a little bit deeper? Sure. Um, the, the most glaring example that I came across you know, I heard of it in 2009 or 2010. A guy named Chris Whalen, who's a well-known investment banker who appears on CNBC, gets on with Larry Kudlow and says, "Well, you know, now that JP, now that JP Morgan has acquired Bear Stearns, Jamie Dimon is in for a big surprise when he finds out that Bear Stearns sold a bunch of mortgage-backed securities more than once, meaning that they." You know, when they, let's take a step back, people were buy, they would sign up for these mortgages, they would take loans, securitizer would package 5,000 mortgages, say, into a pool and sell them off through the securitization process. But what happened in the case of Bear Stearns is they were selling the same mortgages to multiple people. In other words, they never transferred the mortgage, they held it back, they put it on the Xerox machine, they made copies of it. They sold multiple times. Now, that's a straight-up case of fraud, and that's a mostly glaring example. But it, that's a specific subset of 
broader problem, which is that the mortgage paper, the mortgages, the promissory notes were not conveyed to the investment trusts. And that in turn led to the foreclosure crisis. So that, that's what we mean when we say that there was a, there was a fraud in the mortgage backed security space. It wasn't just that the paper was bad and the loans were defaulting. It was that the paper was never conveyed at all. That's, that's, a, that's a severe problem. So I'm supposedly buying a security as, let's say, a fund manager or a pension manager, and, and that security is supposed to be backed by a mortgage, which means some group of mortgages are held within that security. And not only does the mortgage itself default, but then I find that even the underlying asset, which is the mortgage lien against the property, isn't even inside the vehicle that I purchased. Is that accurate? B-I-N-G-O. Yeah, that's, to- that's precisely correct. Okay. Um, <laughs> it just, uh, when you say it's, it, it's, 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 it's a criminal problem, I mean, that, that kind of sums it up right there. Could you maybe speak on this other point? Cause this is something I've talked about, but I don't know that I fully grasped myself that even in places where these mortgages were pieced up and parted out and into different places, one of the, one of the problems is that you're not really sure who's holding the mortgage. Now I understand deeper why that's the case. But in, in essence, in some instances, when you try to track back, you know, Joe's mortgage that's in default and, you know, bank A says they own it, bank B says they own it, bank C says they own it, you really can't even figure out who really owns it because it might actually be been made into pieces within pieces. Well, that, that's exactly right. And, you know, take take the case of Lehman Brothers. You know, Lehman Brothers went bankrupt in September 2008. Lehman Brothers was also a major securitizer, meaning they, in theory, pooled these mortgages, these notes, together into an investment and sold it off. Well, Lehman's now bankrupt. So if it turns out that Lehman never transferred the paper, you've got a problem because now you've got to get the paper out of the bankruptcy estate. And good luck doing that. Or, alternatively... Lehman itself never had the paper. Maybe they got the mortgages from Countrywide. Well, now Countrywide is part of a B of A. So that paperwork is a real problem. You know, when you sign, you know, when you go to a closing and you sign all that paper for 45 minutes, one of the pieces of paper you sign is the promissory note, which is your promise to pay things back. That's that's commercial paper. As soon as you sign it, that's a piece of commercial paper. And so it's like a check. And you're supposed to hold on to the original for a reason. Try going into the bank with a Xerox copy of a check or a Xerox copy of the cash. How are they going to react when you say, well, take my word for it. I've got the paper back at home. I Xerox these $1,800 bills and you can see the serial numbers on them. So we know it's those $1,800 bills. Don't worry about where they're actually at. Just consider them in my account, right? That, that's right, and that's, okay. that's what's happened. But the problem comes up down the line when, when the banks try to foreclose. Like you say, no one knows who has the paper. And uh-huh. as a legal matter, they're not supposed to be able to close without that wet ink signature. Because I should be able to say, as the as the person that's, that's executed the, the note on my end and signed the promissory note, if you say, I do, in fact, owe you this money, show me the piece of paper that says that where I committed by my signature to doing that, not because I'm even denying that I did it with somebody, but do you have the right to the property? That, that's right. It's, it's do, well, in legal terms, K-1 
can the bank establish that they have a legal injury? You know, every lawsuit requires mm. a plaintiff with a legal injury. In the foreclosure space, that legal injury is proved when the bank shows up with the wedding signature on the promissory note and says, hey, this Spearco character promised to pay me the money, and he's not paying. He promised yeah. to pay it to me. And what's happening? Or even if he didn't promise to pay it to me, I bought it from so and so, and this is the original, and now I own the right to it. Correct. It, okay. you know, he he signed the note over to Entity A and through a series of assignments. Now Entity E has it, and I'm Entity E trying to foreclose. But we're finding out, we found out that these entities don't have the paperwork because it was never conveyed. I mean, in a lot of ways, it was just a Ponzi scheme. Well, here's another thing that I've never heard discussed, and, and this this is making me think this, and it's it's pretty interesting, and it it gets into a place where people will say, oh, come on, this guy's just trying to keep his house, even though he didn't pay for it. But there's actually a, a real big legal reason for me to do that beyond just the fact I'd like to keep my house. If, let's say, Bank A is who I signed the note against, and they never conveyed it to Bank B, Bank B then repossesses my house, and I allow it to go down. There's nothing that stops Bank A in the future from saying, hey, he committed a financial injury to us. His process, his problem, he now owes us 180 grand. That's exactly right. So um, now I end up owing to two different places. It, that's correct, because once that court who adjudicated Bank B surrendered the judgment, um, you can attack it in, in a later proceeding, but it's a judgment. And yeah. so if the correct party does show up, you're exactly right. You're going to end up to end up owing two parties. Unbelievable. So yeah. you made a you, you made a film about this, and I mean, it. I do little five minute YouTube videos, and it's a pain in the butt, and you got all this editing, and it can get expensive, and it takes a lot of time and effort. Editing is ninety percent of the production of a movie. There's a lot of cost there. What made you go through the time and expense and trouble to make a film about this instead of just kind of putting out the information that you had? Well, there's really two reasons. One, when 2008 happened and the bailout happened and TARP was passed, I kind of snapped and realized that the political process was in large part a sham. Um, you should have, what you should have seen is Republicans screaming, you know, for the enforcement of free markets and letting the banks collapse. And you should have seen Democrats screaming against corporate welfare, um, neither of which happened the bill passed. So that... We had to uh, destroy the free market to save it. Right. We're going to destroy, exactly, <laughs> we destroy the free market to save it. So that was one thing. But then the other thing is, as the crisis deepened, I began to realize that the disconnect between what was being reported about the crisis and the reality of the crisis was getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And finally, I just said, well... Somebody needs to come out with a movie to explain what happened. I mean, too many films and too many presentations about the financial crisis blame things on abstractions. There was too much debt. Uh, there was excess leverage. There was mispriced risk. There was too much greed. That, that, that is not the problem, okay? The problem is that people committed crimes. That's what caused the crisis. And so I just got to a point. I just basically snapped and and decided to make a movie, which is what I did. I never made a movie. I don't know how to handle a camera. So I partnered up with a friend of mine who, you know, we worked together a lot on it. And, uh, you know, we made a movie. We got a DVD in the box. So Very cool. So can you kind of give people the the synopsis overview of, of, of how your movie plays out? Yeah, sure. The, the movie, it's a documentary. It's called Bailout. 
And in the movie, we cover a series of frauds and scams in the financial system. Fraud in lending, fraud in foreclosures, fraud in the mortgage-backed security space, the scam of credit default swaps, um, and, and in large part, the takeover of the government by corporations uh, generally, and Wall Street banks in particular. But the vehicle for the movie is I stop paying my mortgage. I've written a letter to my bank saying, where's my promissory note? You don't have it. They don't respond. I stop paying my mortgage. I save up the withheld mortgage payment and get a Winnebago and get a bunch of friends, and we're going to go to Vegas. We take a road trip to Vegas, and we're gonna, there we're going to gamble the money away, just like Wall Street does. And along the way, we do two things. One, we inter- well, I interview a series of financial experts who can explain in detail in a very granular way what happened with each of these frauds and scams. So that's one thing. And the other thing we do along the way is we interview people affected by the financial crisis and the foreclosure crisis to show the, the devastation on Main Street. I mean, this is... You have a crime, and like every crime, you have a perpetrator, which no one seems to be really intent on explaining, and you have a whole series of victims. I mean, it's literally, you know, Wall Street in cahoots with the government perpetrating crimes against Main Street, and no one seems to want to talk about it. So that that was the objective of the film, and that's what we show. So how did this process work with, uh, with your bank? So you just stopped paying them. And they, of course, say, where's our money? And you yeah. say, where's my promissory note? And they say, don't give us that crap. Where's our money? And eventually you move into some level of a legal proceeding. So I guess they file first against you, and then you file back in, in a suit. I mean, how'd that play out? Well, they, they, the bank did file a lawsuit, and I fought them and fought them on a bunch of different grounds. You know, when you have a lawsuit, you fight them on every possible grounds. They, for sure. example, they never served me with process. So that was the first battle. I said, well, yeah, I was never served. And so the, the lawsuit went along and chugged along. And finally, uh, last year, I got the case dismissed. Um, and there were so many grounds. I forgot what ground it was. But the case was dismissed. And now the bank has, you know, late last year, they refiled. And so I'm still duking it out with the bank, basically. But in all this time, you stayed in your home and I paid them. Correct. <laughs> Yeah, I imagine you did pay your property taxes, though. Well, no, because the property oh. taxes here's the here's the great thing here's the great unknown in mortgage cases. You know, in a lot of cases, you know, my property is in Chicago. That's where my condo is. I have another place in Indiana, but the subject of the suit was in Chicago. Okay, my payment is escrowed, meaning everything's kind of wound together in the same payment. It's a big payment. Yep. Property taxes in Chicago are high. When you default. It's the the lender who's on the hook for the property taxes. Sure, because they're holding your money in escrow. Correct. Um, right. And so that that'll have to sort itself out in the wash. Um, so we'll see. I mean, it, it's going to depend on how the lawsuit ends up. Is you know, I'll have to, I'll have to make good on the back taxes if I win, and if I don't, it's the bank's problem. Now you're you're not doing this because you're suggesting that everybody in America should just stop paying their mortgage and and sue the bank. You did this to make a point about criminal activity. Correct. I mean, no one – people talk about the foreclosure crisis, and the way the media has spun it is they're like, oh, it's deadbeat borrower, deadbeat borrower. 
and that's not really that, that's not really the problem. You know, that's that's a civil problem. It's a breach of contract when somebody doesn't make the, the, you know on a payment. What's going on with these foreclosures? When these banks gin up this evidence and they fabricate and forge affidavits and they make up evidence to foreclose on somebody, they the banks have committed fraud on the court. And not only is that a crime, but it's a crime that has no statute of limitations because it's so serious. It's akin to murder, um, just in terms of the statute of limitations. You know, if you murder somebody and get pinched for it 30 years later, there is no statute of limitations. You're going to jail. Correct. With fraud on the court. And this is, this whole thing is being glossed over, um, because the crimes are so severe and they're so widespread. I mean, we're talking about, it's, it's a, it's literally an epidemic. But it goes to the government's view that we must do everything to protect these banks, including suppress the truth and allow them to commit fraud on the court and get bailed out and steal people's money. I mean, it's just, it's crazy what's happened. I mean, it, you know, this financial crisis is going to end up being far, far worse than the Great Depression because the truth will out and it's not... The powers that be are not allowing that to happen, and when it does come out, you know we're going we're to see a real, real collapse in the U.S. Because I mean, I think a lot of people think this is just it's well, this is over, it happened, it's done, we're into recovery now. There's nothing to worry, nothing to see here. That's not the case. No, the, the crisis has been papered over, and it's been papered over um, on the one hand by the Federal Reserve basically printing all this money, which they then use to buy these worthless assets from the banks. Essentially, they're paying cash for worthless assets to prop up these banks. So you have this flood of money, which is paper over one half of the crisis. And, and people hear billions and billions. We're talking trillions in, in, in this, this backdoor QE, all of these other different uh, TARP, all of this stuff. When you add it all up, we're talking trillions of dollars stuffed into the banking system. Yes. I mean, it's, it's multiple trillions. I mean, just in terms of the Federal Reserve balance sheet, they added in the space of 13 weeks 1.3 trillion dollars to it. That was just the beginning. Then in 2010, we had the GAO audit of the Federal Reserve. Found out there that the Federal Reserve was lending 16 trillion to the banks, or had lent 16 trillion dollars to the bank. And these are just the things that we know about. You know, as we know, the Federal Reserve is very opaque, very secretive, and furtive about what it's doing. And so, so the money is just sloshing out the door, and it is in the multiple trillions of dollars. And that doesn't even get to the separate question of how much money people lost in the crisis. And by conservative estimates, um, they range from $10 trillion to $20 trillion. So it's, a, it's big money. I mean, to put that in perspective, the GDP of the U.S., essentially the gross national income, is about $15 trillion, and the global GDP is about $60 trillion. This is a lot of money that, that that's at issue here. That's an understatement that it's a lot of money. So are there certain things that you feel makes your, your video documentary different than other films on, on the crisis? Yes. Uh, the, the main thing is that we, we don't pull any punches. We say exactly what happened. We explain in detail how what the crimes are, how they occurred, how they're being perpetrated. We explain credit default swaps. But the real, the real thing we do that hadn't been done is we connect the malfeasance in the crimes and the scams by the big financial players on Wall Street with the harm on Main Street. 
Um, you know, a lot of times when people present information about the financial crisis, as I said, it's in terms of abstractions. Everything's well, you know, okay, so they might have been a little greedy and might have overreached a little bit. No, no, no. They they committed crimes and the crimes had victims and the victims Main Street, and that's why the crisis is is so bad. Um, and the government is simply lying about how bad it is by gaming the unemployment data and you know not really wanting to talk about the number of people on food stamps, which has gone up 50 percent in the space of four years. It's now 48 million people. That's a, that, that, that's 15 million more people than there are Canadians in Canada. It's a lot. <laughs> Yeah, indeed it is. Where do you see this going to in the future then? What do you see as the the conclusion uh, to this this thing that everybody thinks already concluded? Um, Well, we've seen we've seen inklings of it both here and in Cyprus. Um, You know, there was a there was a cash grab in Cyprus. People's accounts, their bank accounts were, were seized. Um, that that will happen here, and, and where it will happen is um, in the derivative space. You know, Bank of America, by way of one example, moved its derivative exposure to an FDIC-insured unit. And what people don't understand in the U.S. is derivative um, derivative the derivatives have counterparties. And so counterparties to Bank of America's derivatives or J.P. Morgan's derivatives or Citigroup's derivatives, they have they all have counterparties. Those, those counterparties are secured creditors, okay? So they have priority over unsecured creditors. And what people don't get is that unsecured creditors includes bank depositors. And, and so when push comes to shove, what will happen is if the derivatives – are covered under the FDIC. For example, Bank of America moved derivative exposure from a Merrill Lynch unit to, which was investment banking, which is not covered by the FDIC, to a unit that is covered by the FDIC. When that, when that derivative space blows up, then the, they're going to, the depositors in the bank are going to be second in line. And so there's no congressman at the world, in the world at that point, Who's going to let the depositors get wiped out? So they're going to have to authorize another bailout because the derivatives counterparties are ahead of the depositors in terms of the priority of creditors. And so that that's kind of how I, I see. But I, that doesn't sound like it's. How do you bail? Like, that's trying to bail the Titanic with a bucket. Yeah, it's trying to pull yourself up by the bootstraps and. You know, I, I just, you know, people talk about hyperinflation and hyperinflation never happens, but eventually, uh, how, how, how do you bail all these people out, um, on the one hand without devaluing the currency on the other? I mean, it's, it's a tightrope and the Fed is out of tricks. They can't lower the interest rates anymore. Um, we, you know, we passed, we repealed mark to market accounting in, in March of 2009. That's what's led to the stock market, uh, rise, basically allowing you know, banks and asset holders to rely to report false valuations on their assets. There's no more tricks left. Um, there's no, there's really no more gimmicks. There's a limited toolbox of gimmicks left. And so, I, it's, it's a great question. I, I don't think you, you can't bail all those people out, given the derivative exposure, without some severe ramifications. 
Well, I mean, I look at it this way. The the entire last 30 years has been a series of bubbles to counter the prior bubble. Technology bubbles, real estate bubbles, etc. We've bubbled everything we could possibly bubble. We started with consumer goods, yep. education market. We've bubbled, bubbled, bubbled. And every time a bubble pops or ceases to have an effect, for instance, the, the student loan bubble is a bubble. There's a massive part of the economy that's being floated off of that, massive amount of jobs. It hasn't popped, but it's kind of reached its, its plateau. So then we need a new bubble. Well, the latest bubble is a money bubble. And once you've bubbled money, there's nothing left to bubble. You can't just like there's what do you where do you go from bubbling money? You you don't. You painted yourself into a corner, and you're just going to have to take your medicine. I mean, back to your point about 30 years, you know that was roughly when we started offshoring manufacturing, and that's a, that's a severe problem because there are really only three ways to create new money. You know, you can manufacture it, you know, manufacture goods, you can farm it, or you can mine it. Well. You know, those, those three things are, for the most part, gone. And you're right, we've blown credit bubbles. So we're, we're you know, we, we blew them in the, in the technology space, like you say. The real estate one was a huge in the student loan bubble. We're out of bubbles. Um, and so in the end, you're right, we're, we're bubbling bonds and money. And it, it, it's just going to be, I, I, I just don't see a, a, Jap, a Japan-style, you know, gradual scenario. I mean, Ponzi schemes don't have, they don't unwind in a very, um, you know, well-behaved manner. It, it tends to be more like a game of Jenga, where you know, this is, they, they just end rather abruptly and rudely. Everything looks okay, even that last little piece that's b balancing, but when you pull the last one out, the whole works comes apart. Yeah. Well, think about Bernie Madoff's investors. I mean, they, they were cool for years. They'd read their financial statement, I got a lot of money. They'd read their financial statement, I got a lot of money. Until they read... In the headlines, oh, all my money is gone. You know, so you, you you can't really. There's a huge normalcy bias built in to the U.S. and the everywhere where everybody thinks, well, yesterday was okay, and the day before that was okay. One of these days is not going to be okay. And the question is, you know, when does that wily coyote moment come, and how bad is the splat going to be? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you bring up an interesting. Uh, name there with Bernie Madoff because he was the bad guy that did everything. And he, they, this guy had like absolutely jack diddly nothing to do with the real estate crisis, but he, he came up at a convenient time for anger to be misdirected, right? So you never let a good crisis go to waste and you never let a good stooge go unbeaten. So you've got Madoff, and I'm not saying this guy's a good guy or anything here, but Bernie Madoff had, had as much to do with the the failure of the mortgage backed security system and and that whole financial collapse and crisis as I don't know Barack Obama has to do with the temperature of the water in my pool. I mean well, they're right. just too, they're not connected but somebody should go to jail here so I mean Bernie went and he beat the system by dying. Um how many people do you think legitimately have had their hands on this and should be in jail for this? Um, between 100,000 and 200,000. And I say that because if you look back to the last financial crisis when we actually punished people and sent them to jail, it was the SNL crisis. It was yep. $125 billion was the cost of that crisis. And 1,100 financial executives went to jail. This crisis is 100 times bigger. 
So just on that measure, you'd have about 100,000 people in jail. So that's, let's call that the left side of the goalpost. The right side of the goalpost we can get by through an entirely different consideration, and that is Iceland. You know, Iceland's economy is about exactly one one-thousandth the size of the U.S. They have 320,000 people. We have 320 million. Their GDP is 13 billion. Ours is about 15 trillion. So it's a thousand to one ratio. Iceland, unlike us, decided to enforce the rule of law and punish criminals, even when they wore fancy suits. And Iceland has put 200, 200 people in, 200 bankers in jail. Actually, about 209 now. They just prosecuted nine more. And so if you scale that from Iceland to the U.S., you come up with 200,000. So that should give you a benchmark of how many people we should be seeing in jail. Senior financial executives involved on this. And I don't count Bernie Madoff because he wasn't really a senior guy on a name player. You know, he ran a Ponzi scheme that affected, you know, some investors around the country, but he wasn't involved in the mortgage-backed securities space at all. So that, that should give you a feel for how many people, just how broken down our justice system is. Um, we pro- they pro- we've prosecuted nobody under President Obama, nobody senior anyway. Yeah, um, and I mean, I think there's a lot of, I would say non-criminal criminal culpability in the system as well at the lower levels. For instance, okay. I know personally on kind of a first name handshake basis the owner of one of the largest mortgage brokerages in the state of Texas. And when some of this crap was going on, I'm talking before the crisis, I would talk to him and I was like, "Dude, um some of these loans that are being made, this just like these loans shouldn't even be happening." And, you know, can you explain this to me? Because, I mean, I thought this guy was a really honest, upstanding guy, but yet I knew his company would process some of these loans this way as well. You know, the, 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 the what do you call it, the, the subprime mortgages and things like that. And what he told me is he said, Jack, let me explain how this works to you. If you come to me and ask for a mortgage and I try to give you a good, high quality mortgage and you don't qualify and I know that there is another mortgage that you would qualify for, even though I know it's not a good mortgage for you, it's not a good mortgage for the lender, but I know that it exists. And I do not put that in front of you and make you the the offer to at least offer and extend it to you. I am in violation of federal law, and it's considered discrimination. So here you have a guy that's basically saying, to keep my business open and my doors open and my business running – I am in a position where I have to extend to you a loan that I know is bad for everybody if you'll qualify. And if I withhold that, it's being treated basically the same way as not hiring someone because they're female. Yeah, I mean, there's, you know, you've got to back up and realize that a lot of you know, what, what really drove the crisis was the it wasn't so much subprime loans. It was really the alter, the liar loans. Okay. And the liar loans, you know, in 2004, the FBI came out with a report and they said, look, um, 80% of the loans, or 80%, 80, there's a lot of fraudulent loans out there. 80% of them are being committed by industry insiders. And so what was happening, what really drove the worst, most egregious loans that would never be paid back were the liar loans. And the liar refers to the lender. And so, yeah, while there was some, you know, there's a lot of pressure for people to make bad loans, 
there was a lot of people, you know, pushing out loans they knew would fail simply because, you know, once they get that person to sign the promissory note, they've got commercial paper and they're going to hold on to it for 15 minutes anyway and just sell it um, down, you know, down, down the road. So they don't have to worry, you know, the people making the loan, they're only hold on to it for 15 or 20 minutes. They don't care if the loan fails. And that, that was really what, and the FBI actually warned in 2004, they said, you know, if we don't, we don't nip this in the bud, um, it's going to cause another financial crisis. And what happened was the FBI, you know, under George Bush, <laughs> the white collar criminal fraud enforcement division of the, of the FBI, for the most part, was reassigned to cover terrorism. And, and that was really, you know, that was really what. So, I mean, what, no enforcement of law anymore. So what it seems to me like is that the criminal activity, and I'm not talking about the post-crisis activity where where people turned a blind eye to things or swept it under the, the rug. I'm saying the pre-crisis criminal activity is not solely one of bankers and senior executives and things like that. It's also one of government officials that knowingly enabled this crap. Oh yeah, I mean it's you know now you've got a you've got a system now, and you've talked about it on your show before. It's economic fascism. You know, big corporations are in bed with the government, and one of the reasons you're not seeing any criminal enforcement is that if the enforcers, the FBI or the Department of Justice, went after the perpetrators, what you would quickly find is the complicity, um, if not the outright enablement, of frauds by people in the government. And we got a whiff of that in the Lehman Brothers bankruptcy. Um, that bankruptcy report came out, and you know you had the SEC on site at Lehman Brothers, um, full knowledge of what they were doing. On the one hand, you had you know Tim Geithner, who at the time was at the New York Fed. He knew what was going on. I mean, these guys are all in bed together, and it is a disaster. So do you think that that's part of why nobody has gone to jail? Because it's it's going to be like as soon as they really start to go after anybody. Um, I mean, let's say you came after me for doing something, and I know that plenty of other people did exactly what I did in worse. Am I not going to make that part of my defensive case? And then does that not lead to, you know, the, the one string that you pull out of the towel, and then when you start pulling it, the whole thing unravels? Well, that's exactly right, Jack. And, and we know that from the HSBC episode. HSBC was caught. They admitted we were laundering money for terrorists and drug dealers. And no one went to jail, but if you remember, the company had said, "Well, we fired. We've already fired most of the people who were involved in that activity." And so, yeah, HSBC was never prosecuted. Lanny Brewer, the Department of Justice, said they're too big to fail. It'll destabilize the financial system. But they never explained, even accepting that theory is true, which I don't. But even under that theory, they never explained why they didn't prosecute. The bankers who were outside of HSBC now that they had been fired. And the reason they hadn't is exactly what you're saying is that those people know too much and they're going to name names and it is pulling a thread and it's not going to stop. And so I, I think that that's why the number of prosecutions of senior level people um, who are involved in this is zero. Yeah, I mean, because I would. If let's say you were prosecuting me because. I own chickens on my street, and you were going to put me in jail for that. It became a criminal offense. But I damn well knew, like, 
50% of my neighbors had them too, and none of them were being tried, I'd say, hey, look, you can't do this to me, because it's equal protection and equal prosecution under the law. Clearly, all of these people are being left alone to do this, and, and I, I, I'm here being prosecuted for some arbitrary reason, clearly. I mean, any if you're an attorney, I mean, if you had a client sitting on stand being accused of something, even if they were guilty of it, but you knew that there were thousands of other people openly doing it now, being ignored by the same law enforcement structure, would you not point it out? Of course. And not only did they know people on your street who have looked the other way or who are doing the same things, the real problem is that you could also name people in the government that you had paid to look the other way while you were doing this, and, and now you're being turned on by the successor to those previous politicians. I mean, it's a big... You know, it's a big club in the government, and you know they 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 protect their own. Um, and it's just when you when you boil it down, it's not that many people who are involved, but they are most definitely in cahoots with one another. You know, both in the financial institutions and in government. I mean, you know, you're mentioning names here. There's two names I haven't heard that I've never heard anybody talk about this subject for this long without bringing up. One's Freddie, and the other's Fanny. Well, sure. Um, <laughs> And they, but but you know, Penny and Freddie, if you look at the timeline, they they really, they they were kind of late to the game actually, um, and yeah, they they you know they paid Franklin Reigns, I forget what it was, 130 million, or something. I mean, come on, man, who makes 130 million dollars? I mean, I don't have a problem when Bill Gates or Michael Jordan makes that makes that much money, but a, a banker, for what? They're being paid for something else. But, you know, and Fannie and Freddie for a long time, they, they were really considered, due to those massive paychecks like we saw going to Franklin Reigns, they were really considered part of Wall Street. So, again, you know, it's, it's an, it's, you're seeing the merger of, you know, supposedly private corporations and the government with Fannie and Freddie being somewhere in between. They were kind of quasi-governmental. But wow. it, at this point, it's all part of the – they're all part of the same team. You know, it's the plutocrats. The kleptocrats up above, and everybody else is left to fend for themselves. So, I mean, what what should people do about this? Because I, I, you know, I'm all for let's rally the troops, let's get something done. But I think in this case, running your congressman will result in nothing but a return of a form letter that says how important you are to him. Um, I don't think anybody in government has an interest because of the consequences of digging into this. So what should people do? I mean, my standpoint has been there's certain things that are going to happen, so we need to be prepared for them. Um, what would you advise people to do about this? Well, I mean, doing exactly what you're saying. I mean, we know to a, to a large degree of certainty that this is not going to end well. And so the first thing you do is, is just get prepared. Um, I mean, there may not be so much you can do because the, the, the capture of the government is so complete now. But, you know, I, I just, I won't shut up about it. I tell everybody about it. Everybody told me, you know, I was crazy four years ago or five years ago that, you know, I said the banks are, are controlling everything. This corruption is out of control and no one would believe me. But, you know, more and more people, more and more people are kind of getting onto it now, but it's still, it's a small fraction of the population. Most people, you know, they got drool running out of their mouth. They're watching TV. They're, you know, on Facebook, whatever they're doing. They're not paying attention. So I mean that's that's um, where you're so at, and it's more of a preparatory thing than in a than a you know because I mean I have I've had called Benninger on for instance he's always saying get politically active and I'm like 
dude, what what are, what do you what do you think people are gonna get done that way? Yeah. Well, Carl, you know, Carl's even kind of backed off from that now. I mean, Carl was actually in my movie. I went down to his house and interviewed him. That that was and he's a smart dude. Um, but even even he sort of pulled pulled away from that now. And I mean, he's withdrawn from. You know, he was he was active in the Tea Party. He pulled back from that. He was active in the Libertarian Party. He's just chopped up his car there. I mean, he's running out of patience. Everybody's running out of patience. And he, what he's saying now is, unless you have your money, unless you could see it, it's physically in your possession, it's not yours. And so that's a big thing people can do is, you know, keep a minimum amount of money in your checking account. First off, get you've got to get out of banks like J.P. Morgan Chase, Bank of America, Wells Fargo, and City. Agreed. You've got to get out. You probably well, get here's an interesting question. I'd like your take on this because people, people, you know, I say, well, if you want to hold cash, freaking get a drop safe in the concrete slab of your floor with a fire safe and put it in there. And they say, isn't it better off in the bank? And my response is, for what? So it's completely visible, um, completely exposed. Yeah. Oh, and by the way, you, in return for that, you'll get a you know point zero one percent interest on it. It's not even like there's an interest payment worth having your money not in your hands for anymore. I have a few thousand bucks in the bank, and I'm wondering why the hell I have it in there. I mean, other than the stuff you have to keep rotating through for your um, for your checking to pay bills and all with, you know, I'm saying even in a savings account, if you're sitting at a savings account, you'll get five, ten grand, and I was like, why, why do I even have that in the bank? What good does it do me? It doesn't. You're just exposing it to risk. I mean, unless it's in a credit union, which they have a different regulator, you know, it's not the FDIC or the OCC, it's the I think it's the NCUA, the National Credit Union Association. But you're right. I mean, if you, you're, most people, 99% of them, you ask them how much money they have, they get on their computer and they look at digits, they look at figures on the screen. Well, that, that money is just exposed to risk. You're an unsecured creditor. That's your legal status in a bank. So you're absolutely right. People must be insane to leave their money in banks. Get it out. Where, where are you on the concept of, of precious metals, silver and gold? Oh, uh, I am so I'm happy that I went out and bought uh, a, a lot of silver because it's real money, um, and you know it's real money because you know if you just consider a quarter, a quarter in 1964 would buy you a gallon of gas. Well, 25 cents no longer buys you a gallon of gas, but you know what does buy a gallon of gas? 1964 quarter. Why? Because it's ninety percent silver and ten percent copper, it's got a melt value of like, you know, between five and eight dollars. So yep. it's more than a gallon. That's that's real money. Gold and silver are real money, and they've been real money for ten for five thousand years. I mean, you read the Bible, you read Shakespeare. They're talking about gold and silver. That's money. They're, you know what they're not talking about? The U.S. dollar. I don't <laughs> Well, you know, I did a show on silver where I dug deeper into that analogy with the gas and and all, and I priced. Things like cars, I price things like housing. And when you use median pricing of housing and cars, so you're talking about the average three-bedroom suburbanite home, the average four-door sedan, cars and houses are both less expensive today in silver quarters than they would have been in 1960. That's, that's exactly right. And that's what's astonishing because you think it would be constant. And it's not. So it, it kind of tells you that the devaluation of the currency, you know, first off, it's not like silver and gold are rising in price. We think that because we 
trained to think in dollars. Yeah. But your pile of silver doesn't get bigger. Your pile of gold, in theory, doesn't get smaller. But you're right. The, the devaluation is actually greater than anybody expects because the silver buys more on a on a real dollar basis than it did, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago. Well, and here's how I look at it, uh, John. I see it this way. Like, so you look at how many quarters it would take to have bought a house in 1960, and how many quarters it would take to buy a house today. The the basic differential is the honest inflation. In other words, the inflation they told you the truth about. When you start looking at how many less quarters you need if they're made out of silver, that's the hidden, that's the lie. Right. And, and if you want to see it, all then you have to do is flip it around the other way and price the Dow Jones in silver or gold. Whoa. And then you see the entire lie for what it is. Because all of a sudden this market that's up, 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 it ain't even up, it ain't even flat, it's down in Damn. value. That's exactly right. Um, and that, and that's really true. That's true for a lot of things. I mean, real wages are down in this country. And when you look in terms, you're right in terms of silver and gold, they're way down. I mean, but that you know, silver and gold are real money. So I'm a big, big proponent of that. But you know, again, it's got to be in your possession, um, or or with somebody you really trust with your your money or your life. And, you know, the financial advisors kill me because when I, or I was listening to a financial podcast recently by a guy I actually have quite a bit of respect for. I wouldn't bother to even listen. But he was talking about how client, he's trying to explain to his clients now that the market, since it fell, is up 140%. And by taking their money out and sitting on the sidelines for that entire period of time, they've lost out on that gain. That's only true if you didn't own anything the day before it crashed. Right. Because I don't think what people get is if the market goes down by 50% in value, it doesn't need to go up by 50% in value to get back where you were. Got to double. It, need, it needs to go back up by 100% to break even. Got to double. Yeah. Right? So when you say it's up 140%, what you're actually saying is it's in, in reality, it's up about 12.5% from where you fell. And a and, and 12.5% gain over six years is, you know, you could have done better sitting in silver quarters. And, and I'm not saying there's nothing to be made out of the market, but boy, I, what I liked what Carl said when he was on the show is don't let the sun go down on your money. Yeah. Well, and the other thing in the market, the two other things are you've got high-frequency trading out there. You know, 84% of trades now, are, it's computer to computer. So you, if you're in the market and you're trading, you're getting absolutely scalped by high-frequency algorithms, number one. Number two, the stock market rise, again, Congress repealed... FAS 157, mark-to-market accounting. So if you had, you know, uh, a second mortgage lien and, you know, second mortgages are essentially worthless because the, most of the primary mortgages are underwater, you know, if you value those things honestly, they'd be, what, 20 cents in the dollar. And that's what banks used to have to value them at. But in March of 2009, Congress, you know, got rid of that. And so now banks can say, well, my second mortgages are worth, uh, you know, 90 or 95 cents in the dollar. So they're, they're lying about their asset valuation. So the whole market rise is hinged on the mispricing, the, the overinflation of asset values. I mean, all these banks are, they're broke. You know, it's interesting you say that because when this crisis really began to rear its head and get really, really bad and people started to freak out, right wing radio hosts, 
came off all over the United States talking about how it was all because of FAS-157, and, it should, and they could fix the whole problem with the stroke of a pen, which is, <laughs> in essence, what they did. But it was amazing that the right wing went completely apeshit on this being a good thing to do, and the left wing was completely silent on the issue. I, I did, right. I mean, when, when the bailouts started, all political labels you know, went just completely out the window. And so you're right. You see insanity now, political insanity now. You have a, a liberal constitutional law scholar president in the office who's really gung-ho on, you know, drone killing people without a trial on the one hand. And then you're right. On the other hand, you see right, supposedly right wing people, you know, basically in favor of outright corporate welfare. It just, yeah. It's just incredible to me. Well, we have to because if we don't, that's that's what you hear. You know, I don't like it any more than you do. Oh, I think you do. <laughs> I really think you do like it more than I do because I don't like it enough. to. And I do think that as bad as it was, this could have been sorted out if we let it go. Absolutely. I think now that they, they purposely put it into a position where even the people that know they really want, they like, but it's so awful at least we can buy some time to be more prepared because this is going to be horrible now. Well, the whole the whole notion of systemic risk, you know, back in 2008, it, it was exposed as a lie. And the way that happened was when Hank Paulson, then the Treasury Secretary, came to Congress, he said, if we don't take $700 billion and buy these toxic assets, remember, it's the Troubled Asset Relief Program. If you don't Correct. take the $700 billion to buy the troubled assets, we're going to have martial law. What happened? They passed the legislation, and then Paulson says, well, we're not going to buy the troubled assets after all. We're just going to give the money to the banks and let them recapitalize themselves and pay bonuses. So I'm like, well, we're going to have martial law then because we're not buying the troubled yeah. assets. He said, if we don't buy the troubled assets, we're going down the toilet. He didn't buy the troubled assets. There's no problem. So the whole thing, the whole notion of systemic risk, it's just ridiculous. It's a lie. Tim Geithner told Neil Borofsky it was a lie. You know, it's been rejected in the courts. I mean, how many times can we shoot this dead horse, you know, and just say it's a lie, okay? There is no such thing as a bank that's too big to fail. It's just preposterous. Well, and there was other components to this. Like when they shoved all this money and they said, well, now the money will move and the credit markets will reopen and all. Yeah. And it did unseize the top level stuff you were talking about at the beginning. But people yeah. were going, but I got a good job. I can't get a mortgage. I'm trying to buy a house. What? And people are going, well, where'd the money go? Well, the money's gone, right? It was disappeared. So, like, let's say that you borrowed $100,000 through a MasterCard. And you went out and you just pissed away the money. You got drunk. You did dope. You had, you know, you had ladies at evening coming over, and you just did that for like a year until your card went dry. And then I came to you and said, "Well, I'm going to bail you out, and I write you a check, right, John Titus, one hundred thousand, and no one hundred dollars, and I give you the check. And then everybody says, "Well, where's the money? Well, in, in, assuming you can't just get another credit card." and you actually fill that hole in, the money is gone. Yeah. It just went into a hole and it disappeared. And I think a lot of the money that came out of taxpayers' pockets filled holes and was disappeared into the accounts of foreign bankers. Correct. I mean, that money, you're right, that money went to paper over the fraud, to paper over these, these bogus asset valuations. 
And if you look, you know, the St. Louis Federal Reserve keeps charts on money velocity. And if you look at their chart of money velocity that goes back to like 1921, you can see that the money velocity in 2008 just drops off a cliff. I mean, it's lower now, the money velocity, than it was at the depth of the Great Depression. So this myth that, well, we'll just give the banks money and everything, everything will be okay and people start spending again, it's just, it's another lie that was just foisted on the people to prop up these insolvent banks. So you're See, right. I'm glad you bring that up because that's where people get into trouble with just buying into things too simply and, and then going overboard with buying gold or silver because what they're told and everybody that sells a gold coin says inflation is simply when they print more money. And it's not. It's volume of money plus velocity of money. Those two have to go into conjunction yeah. to realize the inflation. It doesn't matter how much money's out there if it's not moving. It's right. it, and that, That's like the other side of this mess is, one, all of the fake stuff on one side, but there is this glut of dollars out there, and it's either, okay, that glut breaks like a dam and gives us inflation or the toxic nature of what's still out there, and either one is bad. That's right. But you're right. The money, it has to be in the system. So it's being kept out of the system, as best I can tell, two ways. It's sitting in the gas tanks of these banks, number one, or, like you're suggesting, it's sitting overseas. And we know that's true, too. I mean, a lot, you know, if you just look, consider the, the cash in the system, there's a little bit over a trillion dollars Federal Reserve notes and cash, something like 65 or 70 percent of that money is overseas, not in the U.S. So as long as it's kept out of the system one way or the other, either idle, sitting in a vault, or it's sitting overseas, it ain't a problem. But once it gets sprayed back into the U.S. one way or the other, uh, <laughs> you're going to have a little bit of a problem. I completely agree. And, I mean, on the other side of it, you have a quadrillion dollars of derivatives. Well, yeah, I mean, that's, that's another one. I mean, if you look at the, the OCC quarterly reports, you can see that uh, J.P. Morgan has something like, you know, roughly $80 trillion in exposure. Uh, Bank of America has a ton of exposure. I mean, all the big banks. Wells Fargo doesn't have that much, but the other three, Citigroup, uh, J.P. Morgan, and Bank of America sure do. And like I was saying earlier, you know, Bank of America has put that exposure now into an FDIC bank unit, FDIC backed unit where it, you know, the counterparties to the derivatives will have preference over ordinary depositors. I mean, then that, that's, that's a frightening thing because Bank of America has something like, you know, if memory serves about 50 trillion in exposure. And, that's yeah, and I mean, the best estimate on M3 right now, the total money, monetary supply is somewhere between, depending on who you believe, uh, 12 and $16 trillion exist. Yeah. And they have a, 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 a counterparty risk of $50 trillion here, $30 trillion there. I mean, you know, it just kind of adds up. Yeah, you know, what's a few trillion between friends, you know? It does, it does add up, and eventually, you know, the, the balloon... Uh, the air is going to show up in a, in a bad part of the balloon, and it's just going to be a real problem. We saw a little bit of a hint of that in the London whale trade. You know, last year about this time, Jamie Dimon was saying, oh, you know, the CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase, it's just a tempest in a teapot, and then it was a $600 million problem, and then it was a $1.2 billion problem, 
and it just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. It's like, well, wait a minute. I mean, what, what, why can't the CEO put his finger on a problem to a, to a more accurate degree than say plus or minus three or four hundred percent? I mean, that, that's a, that's an issue, you know, so that's another accident waiting to happen. Yeah, not to mention, I mean, a few years ago we learned that there was like $60 billion of Pentagon budget just missing. Not misappropriated, not stolen, they just don't know where it went. No, that was, it was more than that. That was, in, that was actually September 10th, 2001, when, when, I forget who it was, some Pentagon official comes out and goes, ah, you know what, we just can't, we can't find two point, can't account for $2.3 trillion. And then the next day, you know, we all know what happened uh, September 11th. So yeah. that, that 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 was a big problem. That's a different that's a different episode. You're right about that though. That's going way back now. Yeah. But you know, somebody who's talked about that the disappearance of money is uh the former secretary uh, assistant secretary of housing in the in the Bush senior administration is Catherine Austin Fitz and she's like basically saying, you know, trillions of dollars are flowing out of the system through HUD you know, housing and urban development. And HUD is, is just, it's a sewer. She called, use that word, it's a sewer of corruption. And no one knows where this money's going. I mean, where are these trillions of dollars going and what is it, what's this money being used for? No one really knows. So it's not, you know, people like Catherine Austin Fitz, you know, you know, a senior level you know, Republican official, you know, Paul Craig Roberts from, he was a, you know, assistant secretary treasurer under Reagan officials. We're not talking about David Walker is another great example. Yeah, yeah, David Walker. You know, now you got David Stockton in there. These people are not some moon bat. You know, crazy conspiracy theorists. They were in the government, so you have one of two choices with them: either you can believe them, which I do, they're all kind of singing the same tune, or you can write them off. They're all just lying, which I don't think is the case. I mean, you watch them speak, and they're very credible and they're very specific with their allegations and people that have been that high can always do better for themselves if they continue to walk the party line than if they go out and tell people the truth when it comes to personal gain there's nothing to gain for a Catherine austin fitz or a david walker to come out and say let me tell you what's behind the scenes that yeah they get notoriety yeah they get speaking engagements but if they stay in that system of rubbing elbows then they're surrounded by billionaires who can get them all of that kind of crap that they want that's right and they've just voluntarily waved bye bye to that because they want to tell the truth hmm. you know they feel it incumbent upon them you know as Americans to tell people this is what's going on you know there are truth tellers out there there's not many but they are out there. I completely agree with that, man. So speaking of telling the truth, that's what your uh, video does, your movie. Where can people find out more about you and uh, and get a copy? Well, it's uh, it's we have a website usabailout.com. Um, you know that that's that's our site. You can buy it there. It's supposed to be up on Amazon, but you know we're having headaches with them. We're trying right now to do a second one in Europe to explain what's going on, but that that's in the very early stages. But you know, for right now, and I write on. I write uh, articles on the dailybail.com under my name. So that's really, that's kind of my internet footprint. Um, I'm working on things like Twitter and Facebook, but I'm not, 
you know. Let me note that the Daily Veil down because I'll make sure I put that in the show. Yeah, DailyVeil.com. Um, I, the, the guy who runs that website, Steve McGrath, I interviewed the film. I interviewed Eve Smith, Paul Denninger, Bill Fadigan, um, a bunch of a bunch of people. Chris Whalen uh, is a good one. Anyway, awesome. Yeah. Well, hey, John, I appreciate you being with us here today, and uh, I appreciate the work you're doing to uh, sound the alarm. Um, it's one of those things where you can tell people, and they either get it or they don't, and I think that we're both in agreement that people need to, right now, be preparing for a day of reckoning. Yeah, no, so I appreciate you having me on, Jack. I think you do great work, and uh, yeah, keep on keeping on, man. All right, folks, and with that, this has been Jack Spearco today along with John Titus, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough. Or even if they don't. Seen our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way You don't have to be another face in the crowd Nobody up there cares, they're living for